Amen. Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, on this third Sunday of Advent, we've been walking through uh, the first couple of chapters of Matthew's Gospel. If you've been with us, you know that we looked first at the, the genealogy of our Lord Jesus, and as we looked there, we saw just that consistent faithfulness of God throughout generations to prepare for the birth of the Messiah, the coming of the King, and then last Lord's Day, we looked there in chapter 1 at Joseph's response to the birth of Christ, and today we're going to look at the wise men's response as we come to Matthew 2. Uh, the wise men aren't the only ones we read about here. We read about King Herod as well, and so we're going to look at his response to the birth of Christ next Lord's Day. But for today, uh, this third Sunday of Advent, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12, and specifically at how the wise men respond to the prophecy and to uh, the pronouncement and to the arrival of Christ, the Messiah and the King. And so out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And this is what the Holy Spirit says through Matthew in his Gospel. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the King, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. If you would, pray with me. Father, I pray as we consider your word this morning, that, that you might do a work in us through it. That you would call us to faith, and repentance, Lord, as we gather during this Advent season, as we consider the first coming of Christ, I pray, God, that you would help us to be prepared for the second coming of Christ. We do not know what day or hour that will come. And so I pray, God, that we would respond to your word, that, that we would be ready today for the return of the King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is that time of the year when, for most of us, as we go to the mailbox, you probably have a, a few Christmas greetings, Christmas cards there. 
Uh, it's interesting to note that here in the U.S. alone, uh, that over 2 billion Christmas cards are sent each year. I would imagine for most of us, the cards we receive have a message, something along the lines of Merry Christmas or, or Seasons Greetings. Uh, some of them may have a, a very religious message, may have a, a verse on them, but what you may not be aware of is a, a new category of cards that are now on the market. Uh, you can now purchase atheist Christmas cards. Let that sink in for a second. <laughs> Uh, the designers of these cards say this about them. We think it's unfair that there are hardly any cards for atheists. We created atheist cards to help change that. Our atheist cards are designed to be funny and thought-provoking and yes, often daring and disrespectful to religion. It's a tough job, but somebody has to expose and ridicule the insanity found in religion. Here's an example of a few of these cards. One of them has a depiction of Jesus on the cover with the words, Merry Mythmas. Another card has a depiction of the Nativity, much like you probably have on many of the Christmas cards in your house. But it bears this. It says, A Savior is born. He's here to die for our sins. Let's not disappoint Him. And yet another card has just a picture of of a Bible on it and reads this way where Jesus was really born and then on the Bible it says holy babble see this is the face of what we call the new atheism it used to be that atheism consisted of those who did not believe in God but were content to kind of stand on the sidelines. They were content to let others practice their belief, have their freedom of religion, while they stood to the side and simply said, we don't agree, we don't believe. But now the new atheism is quite different. And the new atheism is no longer people who just don't believe. They want to ridicule those who do. That they want to mock the faith of anyone who professes belief. Especially in those who would believe that God became flesh. That God was born in a manger. That Jesus is truly the Savior who was born to die for our sins. And so they mock this very notion and they call us fools. But we should be reminded of what the Scripture says about those who call us fools. Psalm 14.1 tells us, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. See, as we come to Matthew chapter 2, we, we don't come to a section of Scripture that is myth or legend. We don't come to some make-believe story. We, we come to a historical account about a group of men who were anything but fools. In fact, the Scripture says very clearly they were wise. We don't even know their names. We just know them by that title. They were wise men. Now, there are many misconceptions we have about wise men. In fact, many of the depictions in our Christmas cards and our nativity scenes aren't really in line with what the Scripture teaches about them. Well, we tend to have a picture of these, these three kings from the East, and yet as we come to the Scripture... First, we see we don't have any idea how many there were. There's no indication that there were only three. In fact, historically, 
a group like this would have traveled in a larger group. There were probably 10 to 12, maybe even more. And then along with these wise men, these magi, they would have had a large caravan, a large group of people coming to them. Their journey was long and far. They had wealthy goods with them. They needed protection. They needed provision. And so chances are this was a very large group that traveled there to Bethlehem. We have no idea about three. In fact, that number three probably comes from the mention here of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the gifts. So we attribute it to three. There's also nothing in the scripture that indicates they were kings, even though that's what the song says. No, these men were actually more likely king makers. They were magi. They were wise men. Magi literally means that they were stargazers. They were astronomers. They, they studied the stars, that they studied religion, and in this case, I believe they had been handed down the prophecy to look towards the star that would lead them to the Messiah. And we also find, according to the scripture, that uh, there's a good indication there that the wise men weren't anywhere near Jesus when he was born, that they arrived when he was about one or two years old. Even though we have the nativity scenes, and normally the depiction there is a Jesus and Joseph and Mary and an angel and the shepherds and some sheep, and then we've got the wise men there. But, but notice what the text tells us. Verse 1 tells us now after Jesus was born. The indication in the Greek there is that this was sometime after. Verse 11 says they, they followed a star to a house where Jesus was with Mary. This wasn't his birthplace. This is somewhere he was at later living there. Verse 16 tells us that, that when Herod orders his murderous uh, order to kill all the young boys based on what the wise men told them about when they first saw the star, he, he wipes out every boy aged two and under. The indication there being that this was probably at the point when Jesus was one or two years old. So there weren't three, there weren't kings, they weren't there at that nativity, and yet there, there are some things we know about them. Even though there's much we don't know, we do know some things. Primarily, what we know from the text here is how they responded to the birth of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to focus on in our study this morning. How the wise men responded to the birth of Jesus. Beginning with the first point there in your outline, we see very clearly that the wise men believed the word of God. The wise men believed the word of God. Well, why do we say this? We'll look there to verse 1. We read that these wise men came from the east. That The literal translation there is that they came from the rising. A reference there to the rising of the sun in the east. Now, now where did they come from in the east? Well, God doesn't tell us here in Matthew. But we can look at other places in the Scripture. We can look at biblical history. We can piece some things together. We, we still know for certainty where they came from, but there's basically two prevalent theories here. The, the first theory is that the wise men were Medes or Persians. Now, according to this theory, basically you look back between the 6th and 8th centuries B.C. and you find during that time in the Scripture uh, there was a great dispersion of the Jews. They were exiled to these areas. And so as they were exiled to these areas, they would have taken with them their, their religion, their, their beliefs about God, the prophecy they had been taught, their scriptures. We know they were there among the Medes for a second. And for example, in 2 Kings 17 and 1 Chronicles 5, we read that some Jews were deported to the city of the Medes. 
And so these Jewish exiles were now among foreigners, and as they were establishing their residence there, they would have likely taught these foreign people they were now a part of about the prophecy, about the Messiah to come. They would have taught them the Old Testament Scriptures. They would have taught them, for example, the prophecy that we find from Balaam in Numbers 24-17 that says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This passage was understood by the Jews to point to a messianic deliverer. And so as they were taught these passages, and as they had men among them who were magi, who were wise men, they would have learned these things, they would have handed these things down, so that when the Messiah star appeared, that group of men would have traveled from Mede or the Persian area, and they would have set out for Judea to honor this newborn king of the Jews. That's one theory. Another is that the wise men were actually Chaldeans or Babylonians. Now, you're probably familiar with the book of Daniel, and if you are, you know in the book of Daniel about these young Jewish men who were exiled to Babylon and forced to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. And how the king tried to have all his Babylonian teaching kind of imprinted on these men and invested in them. And yet, uh, Daniel stood firm in his belief in the one true God and ended up rising to great power and great prominence in that Babylonian kingdom. In fact, we read in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, that the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole providence of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And so here we have this picture that generations before the wise men show up there to Bethlehem, you've got those who went before them being taught possibly by Daniel, if not that, other Jewish exiles about the prophecy, about the Messiah's coming. And so whether... They were Medes or Persians or Chaldeans or Babylonians. Chances are they were influenced greatly by these Jewish exiles who taught their faith to them, who taught them about the Old Testament, who taught them what to look for. And they were trained to look towards these things. And then as this star arose through the leading of the Lord, they, they followed and they came to worship this newborn king. I want you to consider what great lengths God went to to get His Word to these wise men. How God sovereignly moved throughout salvation history to place His people where they would have great influence among these foreigners who He would one day use to come and to worship Christ. Like some of those Christmas cards that we get have a depiction of these three kings, three wise men on them, and oftentimes will say something like, wise men still seek Him. But when you look at a biblical account, you find that what comes before that is God sought these wise men. God preserved His Word. He preserved this prophecy. He put it across the path of the wise men, these magi, so that generation after generation after generation, that Word of God was handed down, and these men respond to it in belief. Belief that then leads them to follow a star to the place where the Christ was born. See, they believed the Word of God. Friends, is that true of you today? Do you believe the Word of God? Now when I say belief, we often think of belief in the form of just 
agreement. And many of us would say, well, yeah, I agree with the Word. I agree this is God's Word. I, I believe it. But, but in the Scripture, the word belief means so much more than agreement. It, it means to place your trust in something. You might think of it this way. Uh, growing up, uh, I was a swimmer. I know I look like a swimmer today, don't I? But, uh, but growing up, I was. I swam competitively, swam in high school. And so when Sandy and I got married and had kids, it was pretty clear who it was going to fall on to teach the kids how to swim. And so with each of our kids, we went through this practice of teaching them how to swim. And, and with the kids, one of the first things I wanted them to overcome is just that, that kind of fear of the water and, and jumping in the water. And so you probably had a, a familiar scene here. I, I would get in the pool, and they would stand there on the side of the pool, and I would say, okay, jump. And I'd stand there right there to catch them, just jump in the pool. And you can perhaps uh, understand what they did. Oftentimes they would kind of get as close to the edge as they possibly could. And I'd say, okay, jump. I will catch you. And they'd say, oh, I'm scared. So I'd say, do, do, do you believe me? Do, do you believe that I'm going to catch you? And they would say, well, I, I believe you, but, but I'm scared. And we go back and forth and back and forth. And sometimes this was multiple days going through this. Until finally there, there'd be that moment when I would tell them, jump. You can trust me. And they would step forward and they would jump. See, it's not enough just to stand there on the side of the pool and say, well, I believe you'll catch me. Belief requires action. Belief requires trust. And what we so often see in the church today is people who will quickly say, oh, I, I believe God's Word, but don't really trust the Lord, aren't truly willing to obey God, giving more of an intellectual nod, oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's God's word, rather than no wholeheartedly trusting in the Lord. What we see here among the Magi, among the wise men, were a group of men who trusted the Lord. That they likely had heard, just like we mentioned with Joseph last week, as they were handed the Scriptures and, and these passages, they, they probably heard about the wisdom of King Solomon that God gave him. They were likely taught as well, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord. Now, not just believe in the Lord, trust in the Lord. With all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. And oh, how this trust would be necessary. I mean, just consider for a moment what these wise men went through. That they were from a foreign land. <laughs> they were among a land where people worship many false gods. That they see this star and they decide, they believe, they trust that this is the star, that the prophecy, God is leading us. We're, we're going to follow that star to the Messiah. So they set it on a journey. We don't know exactly how long it took, but chances are we're talking about a journey that took probably around a year at least. And what we see in the text here is the star was moving. And so you can imagine that, that as they would follow the star, they never really got closer to it. That they just kept following and following and following over the course of a year. You can imagine there were probably times along the way where they began to wonder, what exactly are we doing again? Is this really the star that was prophesied about? Are we fools for doing this? And yet day after day, they believed God's Word and they placed their trust in Him. And ultimately, through that trust, 
they continued in their journey until they came there to the Messiah. And that's when we see the second response of the wise men, point two in your outline. That's where we see that the wise men worshipped Jesus. That they responded through a belief in the word of God and they responded through worshipping Jesus. That this was the intent, this was the purpose of their journey and it is clear. They were there to worship. Now worship in the context here, that Greek term was used to describe those who would go and would bow down before royalty, those who would bow down and kiss the ground or kiss the feet of someone who was in high authority over them. To to worship in this context, in this culture, was to express an attitude or, or to express a gesture of one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority figure. In fact, we read about the wise men, about the magi, and we find that, 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 that contextually, culturally, often they were referred as king makers because as they would be men of great study, that if you were going to become a king, you had to come under their study and under their tutelage, but ultimately you became the king when they bowed down before you, when they kissed your feet, when they worshipped. So why would these kingmakers go through all this at the feet of a child, at the foot of a, of a one-year-old Jesus. It's because, friends, I believe they, they knew from the Word, they knew from the Lord, this was the King of kings. That this was the Lord of lords. This was the Messiah. This was the Christ. And so as they come and, and they want to worship Him, there, there's murmurings throughout the city. They come and ask, who, who, where's the King of the Jews? The immediate response there would have been, well, Herod's the King of the Jews. Says, no, 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 no. This, this, this is the child that was born. We, we followed His star. And so as that word gets to Herod, immediately Herod's threatened. We'll look at this a lot more next Lord's Day. But for now, just note here, Herod is threatened. And so Herod secretly calls the wise men in, has a conversation with them, kind of comes up with this plan, tries to deceive them, and say, well, listen, I, I want to go worship Him also. Let me know where He is when you find me. And yet, what we know of King Herod is this was a man who would bow his knee to no one demanded that he be worshipped as God. No, he didn't want to bow his knee. He wanted to bring down the sword on this child. God, of course, reveals this to the wise men who go back a different way. But before they do that, they they come here to the place he was. Uh, Immediately, the Scripture says, as soon as they see the star settle over the house, they go in and they see Jesus. And their immediate response is to fall to the ground. And they just start worshiping Him. Bowing in submission before Him. And then, Matthew tells us, that they present Him with these gifts. And we sang about them just a moment ago. Gold. So to anyone acquainted with the Scriptures, you know that gold is a picture of royalty. It's a picture of the divine. It's what we see God using throughout the tabernacle as it was being established there in the book of Exodus. It was a gift for a king. Frankincense was used for a number of things. One of those was to make an expensive, sweet-smelling incense that was used in making offerings to the Lord. Again, in our study of Exodus, we saw this in the tent of meeting. They would make this incense. They would light it. That, that sweet aroma would, would fill the temple. That This was where God would come and would dwell. 
That's why as we were singing, we talked about frankincense. God is with us. And then myrrh. And myrrh was a very valuable spice used for perfume, used for a number of things, one of which was to prepare a body for burial. In fact, we read that as Jesus' body was taken to the tomb in John 19, 39, 75 pounds of myrrh were brought to use to put there with his body. And so these gifts are given by these wise men to Jesus. Much has been made of these gifts over the years. We talk about how these gifts uh, symbolize different things, identify different things, but I just want to point out what I think is even a more obvious thing about these gifts. The, the, the wise men came to worship Christ and to bring Him gifts, not to get something from Him. And just think about that for a moment. We live in a culture and in a context and in a world of churches today where so often when people talk about going to worship, they're talking about going to get something. That there are so many who come to God to barter. That they show up to church with a list of requests. That they try to get serious with the Lord in a moment of crisis, in a moment of suffering, and they then plead, God, well, will you fix this? Will you do this? Will you work this way? Others will go to great length to go on long religious pilgrimages. Not nearly as long as the wise men. But they'll go on these pilgrimages in order to receive a blessing. In order to receive some good fortune. In fact, the way that so many Christians, or at least self-proclaimed Christians, talk about worship today, you would think that worship is a lot more about us than it is about God. And how often do we hear people say, well, I just got so much out of worship today. Why? Well, I, I used to go to that church, but to be honest, I, I just never got a whole lot out of worship. Right? You know, this last week I was with some friends and we went to the church they go to, and I got to tell you, I just, I just, I got so much out of it. I've had this conversation time and time again with people. I've had this conversation with people who left our church because they said they weren't getting enough out of it. I've had this conversation with people who came to our church because they said they were getting something out of it. And my response either way is this. So what? It's not about you. <laughs> it's not about me. Worship is about God. Worship is for the glory of God. And if you're in this for you, then you ain't worshiping, friend. And we can do that no matter what style it is. Hear people all the time get bent out of shape about, well, I just like it this way. Well, I just like it this way. Well, why don't we do it this way? We used to do it this way. Friends, I don't care if it's a flute or if it's a fiddle. Or if it's an organ, or it's a piano, or if Pastor Matt gets up here and just starts playing spoons for us this morning. If we're talking about Jesus, I'm singing, and you should be too. It is the Word of God. It is the proclamation of the glory of God. That is why we worship. It's not about my preferences and your preferences, and I like this or I like that. Friends, if that's why you're here today, you are here for the wrong reason. We gather with the people of God so that we can worship God together. We see here 
a group of men who traveled probably for a year to walk into a house to fall to their knees to worship a child. And as they do it, to proclaim the glory of God. Do you think about the words that we sing? Or do you just think about the instruments that are being played? Do you think about the words that we're singing? Or you just think, well, I don't know if that's in the right key. I don't even know what that means. When we sing, oh, come all ye faithful. We sing glory to God in the highest. Oh, come let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. Do you adore Him as Christ the Lord? Friends, it is a matter of our hearts, not our styles. And we are to worship God, the Scripture says, with all of our heart. Have you come to worship Jesus today? You may notice that so often I refer to this day as the Lord's Day. You know why? It's not a trick question. Because today is the Lord's. <laughs> today is not Richard's. Today is not yours. Today is the Lord's. And so let's worship Him with it. And let's remember as we worship what worship means. To bow in reference. To submit ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ. It is easy for us at this time of year to see these depictions of Christ as a manger and to look on that fondly, but not to look on Him as our Lord. And not to look on Him as our King. And yet that is exactly who He says He is. And He says if we desire to follow Him, we need to follow Him as Lord and King. Christ says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for My sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Friends, why are you here today? The Scripture is clear. We are to come not to check off some box of religious duty. We are come to come to worship the newborn king just as we see the wise men doing. A third response we see, number three there in your outline, is this. The wise men obeyed God. Verse 12, 12 tells us, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. We don't know exactly what all God revealed to them. It could be that God clearly showed them the heart of Herod and the plans of Herod and says, that said to them, you have to go another way home so that Herod's not able to locate the child right away and where he is. It could simply be that God said to them in a dream, go back another way. <laughs> Either way, the Scripture's clear. Like Joseph, they obeyed. When we looked at this last Lord's Day and how Joseph's response to God's commands throughout Matthew 1 and 2, three different times there. God says it, Joseph does it. Immediate obedience to God. Here we see God says it, the wise men do it. Now, I don't think this was the most convenient option for them. I mean, again, there's a lot we have to read between the lines here, but when he says to them to go back 
to their own country by another way. I don't think God's saying, hey, I know a shortcut here. I think chances are this is a farther way. This is a longer journey. That This is less convenient. But I think it's a reminder to us that obedience is not about convenience. Obedience is about submission to the will and the word of God. And that's what we see in the wise men. That they believed God's word, they worshipped Christ, and they obeyed God. Friends, as you evaluate your own heart in this season of Advent, is that true of you? Do you believe, is your, is your trust in God and His Word? Are you willing to do what the Word of God says you should do? Are you willing to flee from the things the Word of God says you should flee from? Are you willing to set aside your preferences, your desires to deny yourself? Are you willing to follow Christ and trust Him? Do you truly believe the Word? Do you worship Christ? Do you adore Him? Are you obedient to God? Have you surrendered your life to Him? Advent is a time for us to consider these things, but it can also be a time that's very difficult for us to consider these things. Because during this Christmas time, I'm well aware that for many, this is a difficult time. For some of you, this is the first Christmas. For others, it's one of many Christmases where someone you love is no longer here. That this is not what you envision Christmas being like. For some of you, you've had a year filled with disappointment and suffering. For some, Christmas is a very hard, hard season. It's a challenge. And during these seasons, we see that those things can challenge our belief. I mentioned this last Lord's Day, I'll say it again. No, no one stands still in their suffering. And our suffering, we either run away from the Lord or we run to the Lord. But nobody stands still. And the Word of God is clear. It calls us to run to the Lord in our suffering, in our trials, in our times of difficulty. And reminds us over and over again of God's promises to those who will. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 147, verse 3. He, God, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Revelation 21, that great promise of what is to come. Verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, we are reminded this time of year that suffering, while it can challenge our, challenge our beliefs, it can also strengthen our beliefs. And out of suffering, great faith is forged. And that is my prayer for Bloomfield Baptist Church. Not that we would be a people who never face suffering, because we're going to face suffering. But that we would be a people who, when we face suffering, we face it well, and we face it trusting in Christ. And there are many before us who have done that very thing. I'll leave you with the example of just one this morning. In the mid-1800s, there was a man named William Dix who lived in Glasgow, Scotland. William was a successful insurance salesman he seemed to have 
everything going for him, but at the age of 29, he was struck with a debilitating, terrible sickness, very serious sickness that left him bedridden. The days turned into weeks, the weeks turned into months. He was confined to a bed, and during that time, he fell into a very deep depression. But in his suffering, in his depression, he called out to God. And as he would later recount, he met God in a new and in a real way. And out of his painful experience, he he wrote a poem. He called it a Christmas poem, entitled it, The Manger Throne. And then eventually from that poem came a song titled, What Child Is This? He wrote, What Child Is This? Who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping. Whom angels greet and anthem, with anthems sweet. While shepherds watch are keeping. What lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding. Good Christian fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come peasant, king to own him. The King of kings, salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone Him. And then that familiar refrain, This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring Him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Friends, if this child was not the Christ, then William Dix is a fool then the wise men were fools. Then you and I are fools and let the atheists sell their cards to many. But if this is the truth, if this is the Gospel, it demands not only our attention, it demands our complete and total surrender at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It calls us not just to believe, but to trust It calls us not just to agree with, but to obey. Will you trust in the Lord today? Will you surrender to the Lord today? If you'll stand with me as we prepare to sing, what child is this? Let me pray for us first. Father God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the reminder that even in times of grief and in suffering and in trial, that we have Emmanuel, God with us, that we can cling to the cross of Christ. I thank You that we see in the Scripture today a picture of those who, upon hearing and receiving Your Word, they, they passed it down through generations and they were obedient to it. Oh Lord, I pray we would be a people who are obedient to it. And I pray that obedient for some today would start with repentance, with surrender, with placing our trust in You. Lord, there, there, there cannot be two kings in our life. There cannot be two thrones. Either we will be king or you will. Lord, I pray that we would surrender to you and that Jesus would indeed be our king and our Lord and that we would trust in him. We ask, Lord, that you would do this work in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in King Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.